The Woj Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Welcome into Neil O'Shea, the president of basketball operations with the Portland Trailblazers, starting his ninth season in Portland. Does the change from eighth season to ninth season, does it feel like a blur, just one long blur of a year, Neil? Well, I'm going to call it 10 seasons if we include the bubble. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was a whole nother season. But yeah, it, it, it's been a great run. I mean, my God, Terry, myself, and Dame have been together since day one. So, you know, we're just holding our breath. We could make it to a decade. Yeah, I don't think there's another coach, uh, general manager slash president tandem, except for Pat Riley, Eric Spolstra, Dallas with Rick Carlisle. I don't know that there's been a tandem together as long as you two. No, I, I think I think we're third behind, but not behind the two you get. You know, you mentioned Donnie and uh, and Rick and um, and Spo and and Riles. So, yeah, who would have thought? You know, three years ago, I signed a short term contract and kept my lease in Manhattan Beach, figuring I'd last about six months. So, so it worked out pretty well. But I think most of the credit for that goes to getting lucky and having Damian Lillard slip to sixth in the draft. That kind of set the tone far more than my my ability or Terry's. We, we, he covers up a lot of mistakes. Well, uh, you've helped him in this offseason. There's no question. I, but you mentioned the bubble, Neil, and uh, I, I think about it. I actually went back to see the date you left. It was, I believe it was August 29th was your last day after you were eliminated from the playoffs. And that whole experience, Neil, the Blazers were in the Yacht Club, which was, I guess the le- the the least populated of the three sites that teams were. How was life different with fewer teams over there? And then, especially once teams were eliminated, it was the lower, I guess, the considered the lower seeds. And then once teams went home after you got in the play in and got in the playoffs, uh, how was that different? Do you think from the experience of other teams that were all kind of jammed together in a couple of the bigger hotels? Well. Pretty unique. Um, you know, initially there were six of us, you know, at the Yacht Club. And it was great. There was a really a communal aspect to it, right? We were kind of, because we were, we were farther away from everybody else. We were kind of isolated on our property. Um, there weren't a lot of communal areas other than watching Bill Branch and Monty Williams catch bass out of the man-made lake every afternoon. <laughs> um, but it was great. You know, we took walks together. You know, we were kind of doing our laps in the parking lot, trying to stay in shape. And, um you know, it was interesting because we were all in the same position because Memphis was over at the seated team hotel. So everybody in that hotel was kind of fighting for their lives from day one. So, I, you know, I would love to talk to the other guys about what their experience was like the first three weeks. Because for us, you know, it was basically playoff mode from day one. You know, we didn't have the luxury of easing our way into, you know, the seating games and limiting minutes. We had to play, you know, right away like everything was at stake. You know, we entered three and a half games back. And by winning game one against Memphis, we immediately moved to two and a half back. And that kind of set the tone for what was going to be possible as far as advancing into the play-in game. So, you know, there was a seriousness seriousness that came with the Yacht Club that I don't know right from the jump if it was experienced the same way for the teams that knew they were already playoff eligible and it really just came down to seeding. And with home court eliminated, I don't even know how important that was to everybody more so than health and conditioning. But I would tell you, my most enjoyable part of the entire experience was that week we got, you know, when we we ended up advancing into that play-in game against Memphis and everybody else left. 
So, you know, we had the Yacht Club basically all to ourselves. The staff was great. You know, they treated us like, you know, we were part of the family there. They were all rooting for us. They had signs up and, you know, we were able to have a little more freedom, right? We were able to eat in the dining room without our masks on and hang by the pool and take a walk because it was just our group that was that were the only ones left. So we had that for about a week and then we opened up game one against the Lakers and we didn't move over to the bubble until right before game two into the Grand Floridian. So like I said, I mean, there was a real communal aspect to it. I, I thought it was great. It was basically like going to five star with better weather and you know Garf not yelling at you. So I, I like I, all of us that grew up in basketball from the camp environment were well suited for understanding. You sit in your dorm room, you go to practice, you come back, you sit in your dorm room. So we had a, we had a great time. It was a great bonding experience, and you know guys like Damon, CJ, and Mello really took a lead. You know every day, making sure team activity wise, guys were locked in. But they were also engaged outside of formal practices so that, you know, the camaraderie and esprit de corps, you know, translated onto the court as well. Did you feel that one of the pivotal moments in the bubble for your team was the seeding game lost to the Clippers when Dame missed those couple free throws late and people started, the Clipper bench started to act up about it and because from that moment on, Dame became listen. There's always he's always it's it's been a mark of his career to find something to grab onto, and then use it to propel himself, his team. It felt like that was the moment for the Blazers in the bubble. It was, you know, it's interesting. I think you know late in that game, you know, Doc um, had I think he I don't know if Kawhi I think Kawhi sat that game. Either Kawhi or Paul were out, and he pulled the other one. You know, early in the fourth or at the end of the third. And we let our guard down. Um, you know, I remember Rodney Magruder making a big yeah, shot. Um, they had some guys really step up and make plays. You know, they were competing. And I don't think that game had a great deal of importance for the Clippers, right? They were just, you know, using it as a conditioning game. And we, I think let, the combination of us letting it slip away, the manner in which it slipped away late, and then their reaction to it really kind of woke us up a little bit. You know, one – you know, yeah, Dame kind of likes to create the chip on his shoulder. I mean, he's a Hall of Fame player, all NBA, and he still finds things to motivate him. You know, he's still the kid from Weber State. But I think it also woke us up to the fact that just how vulnerable we were to lapses, you know. And if you look, you know, we closed out a lot of games late. We were in a lot of possession, one possession, two possession games the rest of the way where we came out on the winning end. And I think keeping guys locked in, when we let that one go, Carmelo, Dame, CJ put everybody on notice that we weren't going to give up five, six weeks of our lives to go down there and make it an almost. So you're right. I mean, that was a seminal moment for us in the bubble. And it really did propel us to a lot of close victories. And it locked guys into understanding that without crowds, you know, without all the extraneous things that kind of indicate where a game is at late in the late stages, we needed to kind of stay locked in and finish games off. Where you are right now, Neil, kind of right on the cusp of starting camp and being able to have everybody on the floor and guys are going through the protocols and they're coming in and teams are having positive tests just like they did prior to the bubble. Does it feel like you are where you were in July coming back, except this time you're not going to a bubble? You're going to play this in the real world. Does, does, does this time right now feel like that walk-up uh, to before you went to Orlando? 
you know, I think there's probably more of a sense of urgency now, you know, even than there was then, because we knew we had a cushion with the bubble, right? I mean, even if guys tested positive when they returned to market, there was a window where not only could they enter the, you know, the bubble late if they needed to, but we had three weeks between our arrival and our first game. You know, now we don't really have that, right? If, you know, guys test positive, you know, you're looking at probably being away from the team for 10 days. They've got to pass some cardiac testing when they come back. You know, they're going to be deconditioned because they just, they can't work out. So, and, you know, we're really only a couple of weeks away from opening night. So I think there's much more urgency right now. And, you know, we don't, we have new players, right? I mean, I think, you know, we went to the bubble, you know, there was a lot more roster continuity. So at least you knew you could pick up where you left off in terms of your rotation, your role, your approach on the offense and defensive side of the ball. And, you know, now we've got five new players. So we're trying to integrate, you know, five rotation caliber players into our, into our team in the COVID era where guys to date have only been able to go one on oh. So we don't even know what we have yet, Woj, until we get to Sunday when we can get up and down the floor a little bit. More from a timing, fluidity, chemistry standpoint, not to mention the conditioning. I mean, look, we can all work out one on oh, but until you start getting up and down the floor in contact, nobody really knows where their body and their physicality is at. So I would say there's probably more urgency right now to make sure we get off to a good start and we do everything in our power to adhere to the protocols because we are more vulnerable than we were. When we got to the bubble, I mean, the league is absolutely the standard bearer for what you need to do in a controlled environment to eliminate cases and, and virus contracts. And, you know, we went through that and we had no virus issues. Everybody felt comfortable and it allowed everybody the freedom to just focus on doing their job. Now you've got this constant paranoia of waiting for that report every morning to know are you going to have a full complement of players? And it's not as simple as a guy just staying in his room for a couple of days. You know, you're talking about maybe losing a critical player for a couple of weeks through no fault of their own in a lot of cases, just because of community exposure. Is that, are, do you find yourself right now preparing for a chaotic season because of travel, going on the road? And like you said, you can be a careful, whether it's a coach or somebody on your staff or a player, you can be careful and go to the grocery store or come in contact with a family member who doesn't, you know, who got it at the grocery store, whatever it is, that that chaos is probably going to be part of this season. Yeah, I think the league would like to use the term fluidity, but <laughs> but but chaos might be more accurate in terms of, look, we all want consistency, right? I mean, you want to know who's on your active list, who's on your inactive list. Coaches want to know who their starters are, who's in their rotation. Players thrive in environments with consistency, right? It's one of the things we've prided ourselves on is that the core of our team really hasn't changed much. It's really been more in the margins. And, you know, and I think players want to know where their minutes are coming from, who they're sharing the floor with, what their role is subject to who they're on the court with and at what point in the game. And I think everybody's got to just be a lot more adaptable. You know, I think the big transition in the bubble was just playing without fans, right? And playing in a controlled environment with virtual fans and not a lot of crowd noise. But at the end of the day, the only variable there we really cared about was you had a hoop, you had a ball and you had two, you had two hoops, a ball and a bunch of players. And they went out and played their tails off. Now there are going to be things far outside the control of organizations and team members and players that are going to affect what happens when you get on the floor. And guys are going to have to be adaptable and understand that on a given night, 
they may not be sharing the floor with the guys they're used to sharing the floor with. And I think coaches are going to have to be willing to adapt as well, Woj, that there are certain ways you can play when you've got your full complement of players and other ways you're going to have to adapt when, you know, guys are out because of contact tracing or COVID or, you know, even the soft tissue injuries we're going to face because of the fatigue-based issues based on travel and lack of practice time. In this entire episode from March 11th through now, the, the importance of leadership in an organization, in your locker room, the, cons- the continuity you've had in the front office, head coaching, uh, and, and you talked about it in the bubble with Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum, and then bringing in Carmelo Anthony, who carries a stature. I, I, my sense was he walked in and helped to share that leadership burden with you know, Dame and CJ, who had to carry a bulk of it for so long just because of the way players look up to Mello. Has that had greater value in this last, you know, nine, 10 months? Yeah, it's incalculable what Mello does here in our organization, well beyond the fact that, you know, he had a big time year. He averaged 15 and six and clearly made game winning shots and big shots down the stretch in what were playoff style games in the bubble. But, you know, the gravitas that Carmelo has, you know, I was very lucky when I was at the Clippers, Woj, um, my last year there, you know, we were able to claim Chauncey off amnesty. And just having him in the locker room, there was a guy that Blake and Chris Paul and Karan and Kenyon and those guys really respected. But there was also an element of reverence that Eric Bledsoe and the younger guys, you know, had for Chauncey. And I think it's very similar here with Carmelo. You know, when they're on the floor, Damon CJ, guys like that, Nurk, they know the respect that Carmelo still commands from opposing defenses. Um, the presence that he has on the court, the gravity that shifts when guys know they have to stay on home on him as a shooter because they can't cheat off of him. He's still Carmelo Anthony. But the other value that he provides is for guys like Anthony Simons and Zach Collins, Nasir Little, C.J. Ellaby, Gary Trent. You know, he's just a different aura. You know, they all respect Dame. He's a Hall of Fame player, but he's their contemporary more than Carmelo is. Carmelo's the guy, they really grew up with his poster on the wall, and that's not being facetious, right? You know, I like to joke, I mean, that's how long we've been in the league. You know, Carmelo and I came in as rookies together. You know, that was my first year with the Clippers, was Carmelo's first year in the league. And, you know, we've kind of tracked it from afar. But, you know, to be able to share the end of his Hall of Fame journey, you know, to be custodians for that, and that legacy really means a lot to everybody in the organization, from myself to Terry to Dame, to CJ, to our business division with Chris McGowan. And I think one of the reasons Mello was willing to come back was because he is still treated like the Carmelo Anthony in his prime when it comes to accommodations, when it comes to being involved in organizational decisions and conversations that impact what we're doing in our direction. And I think that respect factor led to him really feeling like no different than when it was Chauncey with Chris Paul and Blake, even though he was a different point in his career, that Chauncey is still a member of that kind of triangle that we rely on on a daily basis to take a leadership role on and off the court along with Damon CJ. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. 
but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. You talk about that roster you had in the bubble and how well Carmelo played there. You know, and you got your size back in the bubble. You got, you know, Nurkic was back and Zach Collins was back until, you know, obviously he he got hurt at the, at the tail end and, and he's still on his road back now. You add, you bring Ennis Cantor back in this offseason. But it, what was pretty glaring, obviously, there, and Trevor Ariza, when he opted out, cer- certainly left you vulnerable at the wing. But Rodney Hood comes back now. And then the two deals, the, the one trade and one free agent signing, Robert Covington, the trade from Houston, and then Derek Jones is a, at your mid-level uh, coming from Miami. It's funny, when you think of that team in the bubble, you knew you just had to outscore people and you were going to have trouble defending the wings and now you look at your board, Neil, and you'll start to see him out on the court. You, do you see a team that, that's maybe more balanced uh, and has the ability to guard, especially those great wings that you have to be able to do, especially in the Western Conference? Well, that was the offseason focus. You're right. You know, we got to the bubble. You know, we lost our best wing defender in Trevor. Um, we really did. We had to outscore people. And, you know, it's why we were in too many close games. We didn't get enough stops down the stretch. And it's why, you know, we ended up getting exposed in the playoffs. We started up 1-0 on the Lakers and, you know, it was 1-1 and we were up four at the half in game three. We just couldn't get enough stops. You know, they got stops. They were able to do a better job defensively on our guys than we were on theirs. And it exposed us a little bit. And some of it was injury woes, right? We didn't have Nurk for most of the year. We didn't have Zach Collins. But look, it was my job and I take responsibility for the fact that, you know, I needed to make personnel additions that we're going to be high-level, impactful defenders and prioritizing, you know, flexibility on the wing, guys that could guard multiple positions, guys that could switch, guys with length, guys with toughness. Um, we needed to do a better job of closing out possessions. When we got stops last year, you know, we just weren't rebounding the ball at a high enough rate on the defensive glass. And that really hurt us, too, because there were times on the initial possession we were able to get a stop or force a difficult shot, and we were giving up second-chance points. So, you know, I think one of the things we're really pleased with is we went into this offseason, we were a top three offense, but we were a bottom three defense. And my challenge was, how do we balance that out? How do we gravitate closer to league average as a defensive team without sacrificing the elite offense we've become accustomed to? And I think we're able to do that because we did get multiple two-way players, right, guys that can score and defend. Um, we're going to be much better defensively. We're going to be harder to play against. I think strategically we'll be more disruptive. We'll be able to get more deflections, turn people over, resulting in easier points. And I think one of the things we're really pleased with is the three main additions in Robert, um, Derek, and Ennis all come from incredibly well-coached, well-run programs. And so their tradition into our culture is going to be fairly seamless because they're the kind of model franchise we look to, you know, to, to judge ourselves against. So you had three elite coaches and elite organizations that developed those players, and we get them kind of coming in with an understanding of what it takes from a responsibility standpoint on both sides of the ball to win big games and win advance in playoff series. And is that especially important when, you know, traditionally 
you know, you have like September and guys come in and play pickup and get to know each other and go to dinner and spend time and start building relationships with new players and then into training camp. I, uh, another one of your peers said to me the other day as they were bringing in their free agents and new players, he said, what's really hard is you can't even go to lunch with these guys and get to know the guys you just signed and brought in. We're just throwing them on the court, throwing them together and, and hoping that a chemistry develops and they can fit in. But you, you talk about the backgrounds and sort of the, like you said, the programs, Derek Jones coming from Miami and Robert Covington, who has a who has moved around the league and found ways to adjust. It's not easy to get traded at the trade deadline, go in somewhere and make an impact and figure your way around a new team. I think that's underrated. He's done that. Uh, do, do you think that helps the learning curve with the kind of guys you brought in? Well, I'm hoping it accelerates it um, because you're right. There are things that we like to do culturally. You know, we've prided ourselves on the fact, like most teams, that guys are back right after Labor Day. They're playing pickup. They're lifting. Dame always does a great job of having people over to the house, right, playing video games, watching a fight, just just these camaraderie building um, vehicles that we don't have right now. And, you know, like all of us, you know, we, we, we loved our dining room environment, right? Guys having breakfast together. It didn't matter if you were the assistant video coordinator or a franchise player, you know, getting to know one another. And now guys are very isolated in these little cohort groups for who they lift with, who they work out with every day. So... In order to kind of, the good news is the core of it, Dame, CJ, Nurk, Terry, the coaches, the front office hasn't changed. Carmelo's back, right? Rodney Hood understands the culture. But I do think guys coming from cultures not dissimilar to ours, elite coaches that that play have played in meaningful games as, you know, recently as September and October, that they'll transition probably easier to understanding winning basketball every day in the practice facility and how quickly that they have to understand how we do things on the court, off the court, what people's roles are. Because, you know, for us, Woj, the good news is we've brought guys in whose role isn't going to change. You know, all we're expecting them to do is be who they are, who we identified in the offseason by a trade or free agency, to come in and just be that version of themselves, knowing that that's what we actually need. Neil, when you look at – you've been in the Western Conference your, your whole career. And when you look from top to bottom this year, it, it's interesting to me that you can make a case. I don't know if you ever could – if you could you could have ever made a case for so many teams being able to convince themselves, themselves they have a chance to be a playoff team in the West, that if things break right, I'm not sure, maybe outside of Minnesota, that there's a team that says – we can't get that eighth seed. And I, don't, I keep hearing it's cyclical and eventually, you know, the East is going to catch up and it's, and it never happens. And you look at your conference this year and how, how hard do you have to work as an organization knowing that everybody just keeps reloading and every, all of a sudden Phoenix brings in Chris Paul and you see the development of their younger guys and you go, well, they're a threat. And if whoever it's, it just feels like we keep waiting for this changing of the guard in the conferences and we haven't even seen anything close to resembling that. No, I, I think that's why executive of the year right now is Daryl Morey, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he, he went the other way. If you can't beat him, join him. So, you know, I, you know, it, 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 I tell you what, 
there's a positive and negative to it. The negative is, yes, every year you're fighting for your life. You know, every year it gets harder and harder to crack, you know, the, the top four and then the top eight and now the top 10, right, as far as the play-in game. But on the other hand, you know, it never lets, lets you rest on your laurels and just assume you can kind of, you know, take for granted what you've done and find a way into the playoffs. I mean, because that, that's everyone's benchmark, right? The first benchmark, are you a playoff team or a lottery team? So the fact that every year you're looking at like what they did in Phoenix, right? As far as driving, you know, driving to get better, right? And, and other organizations in the West that just, they forced you to always continue to improve your roster. Um, you never, because look, if you fall into the lottery, it's hard to make your way back out of it. Just, just ask somebody to work for the Clippers for a decade. Um, you know, and, and I think, look, I think it makes us all better. And I think it makes everyone battle tested when you get into the playoffs and you get to the finals, right? It's like, it's a little bit like in college playing that tougher, you know, non-conference schedule to really, you know, to make sure your guys are ready to play big games when it comes to NCAA tournament time. But on the other hand, it is difficult because everybody is one injury away from vulnerability, right? You know, and in this season where there are so many variables outside everyone's control when it comes to whether it's injuries or COVID-related issues, you know, you don't have the luxury of, you know, stepping back for a couple of weeks and going on a four or five game losing streak and think you can recover because the entire season is a gauntlet. Um, you know, there are no nights off in the Western Conference. And I think it's been that way for a while because even teams that maybe didn't believe they were playoff teams, you look at these rosters, they still have guys that are NBA All-Stars and Rookies of the Year. And, you know, they're guys that on a given night, if you don't respect the game and respect their ability to beat you, you're going to get caught on a given night and give a game away that you shouldn't give away. And I think we learned that lesson last year, Woj. I've said this when people have asked about, you know, ending up as an eight seed and having to play the Lakers in the first round was we put ourselves in that position. You know, we, we were kind of cavalier about some games last year in our conference that we thought we could just maybe roll the ball out and go get a win. And it backfired. And those four or five losses that we absorbed in games that should have been wins is why we went into the bubble three and a half games back with, with no chance at avoiding the Laker part of the bracket. You know, we ended up as an eight seed. And if we would have taken care of business with games that we would have thought were winnable games instead of, you know, maybe, you know, losing focus a little bit and giving them away, you know, we wouldn't have been in that situation. Now, something I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're on general managers. There's a lot of league calls, Zoom calls for presidents, GMs. You're having to talk to each other more than you ever have. Uh, you know, you're on committees within the league where you talk about rules and changes and, and ways to advance the game. Has has the pandemic in your mind and the conversations you have within the league, do you think there are changes? Has it forced the league or, or teams and, and how, you, how you can do things better? Has it forced you to examine things during this that you come out of this and say, hey, here's some things we could probably do better that maybe we wouldn't have had to deal with during the pandemic that you're going to come out of this and say, this is a chance to look at some changes and how we do business in the league? Yeah, I, look, I think the league as a whole, is always evaluating our product, right? How we get our product out to our fans, um, you know, whatever vehicles we have, social media, network television, cable television. And, and they're always on top of that. But yeah, I, I think in terms of, you know, it's an interesting thing, Woj. I guess the thing that I would say maybe comes out of the pandemic and the uncertainty 
is teams indexing toward established players, right? I mean, I think when you look at the number of picks that were traded and conveyed in deals, and I know we did it, we took the approach of we want more of the known right now, right? We want guys we know we can put on the floor that can help you win a game day one. Um, we weren't playing the uncertainty game and the upside of younger players. Um, you know, it's why we moved out of the draft. It's why in free agency and trades, we opted for established veteran players from strong programs. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing. I think you saw a lot of it in, in the second round of the draft. There were a lot of these young guys that signed two-way contracts. And it was probably an unprecedented number of guys that committed to taking a two-way for a year or two. Um to secure their position in the league and understand they have to wait their turn because those playoff teams that had those late second round picks, mid second round picks wanted to use minimum veteran exceptions to get guys that they know if they have an injury or an illness, they can put a guy in the game that their coach is going to trust that can maybe affect outcome more than a guy that got drafted as a one and done guy out of college. Would you imagine Neil that the impact of rookies and there'll always be exceptions to it that because of, what the offseason was like, there was no summer league and there were no camps for rookies and their workouts were based on with trainers and things that aren't necessarily comparable to what it's like to be in an NBA gym every day, that we could see a year where there are fewer rookies impacting teams, maybe especially veteran or winning teams uh, because of the pandemic that, than in uh, a normal walk up to uh, a training camp for a rookie player. Yeah, and I think it extends even beyond this year's rookies, but last year's rookies, you know, the second-year players, the guys that haven't established, because they lost Summer League, too. You know, those are the guys that usually make a big impact at Summer League, or the returning players, a little bit more seasoning, a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger, understand the NBA game more. And I think right now, I think the key word is trust, right? We always get into this with coaches and veteran players. They want guys on the floor they can trust will be able to do what they need them to do to help win a game. And I think the second-year players are suffering even more. I mean, you know, not to be glib, but there isn't a coach in this league that doesn't find a way not to play a rookie if he has the choice. But the second-year guys that have had two summer leagues, two GERD camps, right, they've had, they've had two Septembers, and they start building that trust with the coaching staff that they're now gravitating more toward finding reasons to play them instead of finding reasons not to play them. But I do think you're going to find a year where you're going to have a lot of minimum guys that are veteran guys getting more minutes than they would normally expect because they get a coverage, right? They're going to run a play correctly out of a timeout. They're going to know how to take care of their bodies on the road. Um, they're not going to be as vulnerable to the fatigue you know, that the younger guys get into. And, and in defense of the rookies, I mean, at least the second-year guys were in the bubble or they were in the mini bubbles after the bubble for the teams that didn't go to uh, Orlando, you know, the, the rookies haven't done anything. I mean, we like our coaches don't even know who they are. A lot of teams, us among them, didn't travel to do draft interviews in person because of health and safety issues that we had. We just weren't comfortable doing it. So we only saw guys within driving distance. So there is not even a familiarity with the coaches. So, you know, I mean, I think the first time, C, you know, Terry, other than film, laid eyes on C.J. Ellaby was when he walked into the gym for, you know, for his first day of workout. So he doesn't really have any context whether he can play or can't play or even what his game is at this level. So you're right. I mean, I think a lot of the excitement that comes with who has rookies outside the, the very, very high lottery picks, these guys are going to have to do a, a redshirt year and do an apprentice year unless 
there's a battlefield promotion because of COVID or injury where they're forced to play. No, it's great. Neil, uh, I appreciate you taking the time out. Good luck with the start of uh, camp here and uh, stay healthy. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Portland Trailblazers, president of basketball operations, Neil O'Shea. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to listen also to our other NBA podcasts, The Low Post with Zach Lowe and The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.